welcome once again to Cinemaholics, the major motion podcast, where we talk about the biggest and the best films coming to theaters and streaming online from the San Francisco Bay Area. Hey, I'm Johnny Gurney, the film editor for theyoungfolks.com. And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he's a news and entertainment writer at Collider. It's Will Ash. Oh, yeah. Mm-mm. No. Nope. Not even, not, not, uh, um, sanctioning my buffoonery from No, that. and I, I, I definitely, um, but sorry sorry oh. well hold on a second someone's at the door oh boy yeah what's up hey how's it going oh hey it's elvis presley uh, i'm sorry to intrude on you guys uh i know you guys got a, a cinemaholic show to to run out but uh i thought I it would be okay if i stepped in for a second that's okay i don't know is john here yeah i'm over here will but, oh, okay. uh elvis he's 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 muffling he's muffling oh. in on the microphone oh, there's no. only one microphone over here yeah, I mean, and, uh, well, I mean, you know, when you have Elvis in the room, he's the king. Yeah, he exactly. The... He, yeah, he needs he needs the stage. Yeah, that's, that's he right. Needs the... I couldn't have written it down on a post-it any better than that. Well, I mean, Elvis <clears throat> Presley, it's such a huge honor to have. Uh, I was just doing that a moment ago. Uh, yeah, it's I such heard, a that's huge... why I came by. I was a little bit disturbed. Oh, uh, is that like your beckoning call? Like, that's what caused you to, to be someone? That's one way to look at it. Yeah. Hey, you sound a little bit like Nicolas Cage. Yeah, you do sound a little bit like Nicolas Cage. Well, uh, let me get out of here. Uh, get out of your hair. Hey, oh, that's well. a little suspicious, Elvis. <laughs> All right, he just left. I, uh, I think we really, I think we really disturbed him just there. I had so many questions for him. He did look like Nicolas Cage too. Well, I mean, and, have you seen Wild at Heart? Yeah, and you know what? He, he had a key to my house, just like Nicolas Cage. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well. Anyway. On this week's podcast, we're talking about... Uh, what are we talking about again? I can't remember. I need someone to jog my memory. Uh, we're talking about Elvis. The, Elvis, thank you. It was on the tip of my tongue. How could I forget? The newest um, film yeah. from Baz Luhrmann. The BZ... Well, he calls himself the BZ, right? If you say so. BZ writer? I don't really keep in touch with Baz Luhrmann for reasons we'll you discuss should. in a bit. He's your favorite filmmaker? Uh, no. I He's someone I don't uh particularly care for as a filmmaker i have no, no uh, it sounds like you have a personal group okay yeah, i have nothing against him personally i mean I, I'm, I don't know he might be it's a good fine to hear. person uh we're also going to talk about the black phone which is uh the latest scott derrickson film yeah where the son of uh stephen king uh was involved in it i believe joe right? hill yeah joe, joe hill, hill. He, he wrote the short story um but yeah so we're gonna talk he, about that later uh, he produced the movie too He's a co-producer. Okay, I, w- I was about to say that, and I was like, "Wait, I couldn't remember if he was actually a producer." So, I'll take your word for it. But yeah, we'll get to that soon. Elvis is the big movie of the weekend. Now, I do want to take. You know, we've been we've been looking at the box office pretty consistently uh, on the show lately, and yeah, uh, this was a, up, this is an uh, interesting one. Yeah, I was actually curious about this, so I looked it up yeah. beforehand since we don't have a guessing game for the box office. Um, and it seems like both movies are doing pretty well. On their um, the, I, I guess i mean black phone yes um for a horror film that's not an ip that it's not really something that a lot of people have like a oh i gotta go see that it's doing fine yeah 23 million opening that's that's good you know that's very respectable um especially in these times um but then you also have elvis at opening at 30 million now i don't know exactly what the projection was i was expecting it to make around this but i don't know i feel like it's one of those movies where they probably were hoping that it would make like closer to its budget on opening weekend. Like its budget's like eighty five million, 
And that's only, yeah, like, um, barely, the, like a little over a third. I, I, especially in a pandemic, I doubt they were thinking this is going to have an 85 million opening weekend. I think they were hoping it'd be counter programming, right? I mean, last week was Lightyear, sure. you know, I and Lightyear is still not doing super hot. It's only at uh, no. 88 million domestically right now, which is yeah. abysmal. Um, but I thought they were hoping it would do like 40 million, like maybe half its budget on its opening weekend. Yeah. Like 40 million would be a little bit more of like, okay, halfway there. This is a little bit, you know, I mean, for like big success would be like, oh my gosh, you know, 70 million, like almost its budget first weekend movie like that. But I mean, they have to, we have to assume that the, the expectation always had to be a little bit tempered, right? Because we're talking about a movie that is two hours and 40 minutes long. And that is, you know, kind of what you were alluding to. It's kind of geared toward older, you know, the older generation. Yes. But it's kind of presented as like this weird flashy movie with hip hop in the trailer. Yeah, that's where I was uh, kind of baffled because, yeah, when I went to see this movie with my friend earlier today, I I joked on Twitter that I think we brought the median age of the uh, crowd down by at least three decades well, like yeah, the, uh, yeah, I was in a theater that could hold 360 people. There were six of us total. Sure. And I was by far the youngest. I mean, like the youngest, you know, the other person younger, like the, the, the next person on age to me was probably in their 50s. I mean, so I, I genuinely I have no idea, like demographically, who came to see this on like a wider scale. This is Bay Area. I, you know, mm. who knows? But I, I could see like when I was at the theater People were walking right past the screen and they were like, where the, you know, what is Top Gun Maverick? That's what, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. Cause Top uh, Gun Maverick, mm-hmm. 15th highest grossing film of all time at this point. 15th. Oh, okay. Of, of all time. You said of all time. 15th. Wow. All right. And, uh, uh, I think that's, uh, I think that's domestic. Okay. I'd double check that. But yeah, because I was thinking about that when I was leaving the movie, because there was like a crowd forming outside the theater. And I was like, is this audience here for the next Elvis showing or are they here for the next Top Gun? You couldn't tell they were wearing, oh yeah, because they're wearing bomber jackets. It could have been in like an Elvis leather jacket. No, but I just, I mean, like, I I feel like for better or for worse, I mean, you know, and I just, I see an older crowd at the movies now. I'm just like, I'm Mm -hmm. assuming they're seeing Top Gun. Uh, You're seeing seeing what? I assume they're seeing Top Gun. Top Gun, yeah. Because otherwise, like, I mean, what are they, what are they there for? Fan of the Open? Lightyear, Jurassic World Dominion, which or is... Was, yeah. Jurassic World Dominion is at like 300 million right now domestic. So, it, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like it's going to finish out around like 350. It's not doing great. Uh, I actually, I'm, I'm kind of seeing like Doctor Strange, which is already on uh, Disney Plus, might outgrow Jurassic World Dominion, which I did not expect. I thought Jurassic World would do much better. That's where you thought wrong. Yeah, because I think you ultimately, you put Doctor Strange over Jurassic World, right? Uh, Yeah, my initial projection, though, I was... That was a good call. Uh, Conceding with your initial opinion that, like, yeah, probably Jurassic World is going to do better. Yeah, you uh, had your bets, but yeah, you still had a point of view. I get it. Sure. I mean, the big question is going to be Thor, I guess, and Minions. Uh, That's right. And the reviews for Thor, I haven't read them, but I've gotten a sense that they're very high. Uh, somebody I respect quite a bit even said that this is like a bright spot and they've been not, this is somebody who's not a Marvel like defender. Um, He's, he's a bit more on the like critical side. And he was saying, this is actually like a bright spot in phase four, which has been wobbly at best up until this point, I think is what he said on Twitter. 
And uh, well, that's you, certainly if, true. If you don't know him, his podcast is called Strange Harbors. I would check it out. Um, Strange he's Harbors. Really great. Okay. Cool. But uh, Thor. Sure. I'm, I've been looking forward to it because, you know, I, I think that it's going to be like more of a summery kind of movie that a summer high that I've been wanting since Top Gun that I didn't get from Jurassic World Dominion. What do you uh, think? I don't know, dude. I'm kind of over Taika Waititi. I'm getting kind of sick of him. That's uh, my worry as well, uh, that this is going to like push me over the edge on my Taika like dislike right now. And I, I, I want him to win me back. I mean, you know, we're in this weird romance, him and me. I guess. I don't know. Like, people are like, you got to watch Our Flag Means Death. It's such a fun show. I'm like, I'm sure I started it is, watching but, that. It's but, funny. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it's, it's funny. It's quite just funny. Like, I just, I don't know, dude. Like, I just want, I kind of want Taika with Tia just kind of be like out of the spotlight for like five years and then come back with like another What We Do in the Shadows or like Boy or something smaller like he did in his earlier years that I really connected to. Now I just feel like, I don't know. He's getting overexposed. He's like the worst parts of movies like Free Guy and Lightyear. And I'm just kind of getting mm-hmm. annoyed of him. Yeah, it's like, imagine, I, I just want to see your face, Will, when they announce Taika Waititi and Lin-Manuel Miranda doing a project together. And it's going to be like, and you've been cast as the main character. And I mean, to... well, that's the thing, though. Like, I feel like Lin-Manuel Miranda has kind of been like, like after last year, he's been kind of, you know, moving out of the spotlight. You know, he, he, kinda so. had a, he had a busy 2021 and now he just seems to be kind of chilling, I guess, or working on something. I don't know. But yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, well, look at it this way. I would say for me personally, if they were like, hey, here's your chance to see a new Lin-Manuel Miranda project or here's your chance to see the new Taika Waititi project. I'm probably at this point right now, I'm going to pick Lin-Manuel Miranda. So, wow. I would not have expected that, like not even six months ago. I would have been like, Will's probably going to give the edge to Taika just barely. And so I'm kind of, what, what was the movie that kind of, was it Lightyear that put you over the edge with Taika or was it something uh, else? Oh, no, it was Free Guy. I mean, I think Jojo okay. Rabbit was the one where I was just like, okay, this guy needs to kind of calm down. I mean, okay. it started probably with Thor Ragnarok where I was kind of like, okay, this is kind of getting, this is getting a right. old. And then Jojo Rabbit was just like, all right, I don't know what's going on. And then like, like, Free guy, his performance in that movie, like, I don't really believe in the Razzies much, but at the very least, you should have won a Razzie for that performance. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, well, speaking of awards um, and Razzies, he should have talked about all of this. He should have there's had some consequences least, for that performance, I think. I think there's a performance in this movie, Elvis, that is more than deserving of a Razzie, in my oh, opinion. Which one? Which one? It's a question for you. You don't know. Well, I mean, I have a guess, but I don't know why you would. Why would you I give mean, it a Razzie? Is it not obvious? I mean, are you, are you talking about Tom Hanks? Of course. Okay. I was going to say, if you're going to uh, disparage uh, Austin Butler, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to pick a fight with you. No, no, no. I'm not not talking about Austin Butler. We'll talk about Austin Butler, but no. Um, Elvis, which I predicted it, when I was looking at like, OK, what what the top 10, right? Playing the game. I have Elvis at number 10 and I'm still feeling pretty good about that based on this. Like I still think that it'll have some legs and you know, it'll yeah. get, you know, a pass like a hundred something million. I don't think it's going to make double its budget. Like I don't think it's making like 175 million, uh, unfortunately for it, but mm-hmm. I, I think it'll be in the top 10. Right. I have it right at 10. I forget Black if I had it. I, I don't have Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember if I had it 
at in like the bottom three of my top 10 or if I had it in the wild cards. Because mm. I'm pretty sure I had Black Phone number 10. I, I had Black Phone as like a dark horse um, because I think that that one could, you know, could sneak into the top 10 possibly. But hey, anything's possible because Minions Rise of Gru, which I was oh, supposed to see tomorrow. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm not going to see it tomorrow. Why is that? Um, I, I canceled uh, or I'm canceling on that. So I, instead, I'm not going to be I'm going to be seeing uh, where the crawdads sing on the oh. next day. So okay. I'm be checking that out. And then why? Four. Why are you canceling on the Minions, man? Oh, just like a personal uh, oh, thing okay. that took precedent. That's all. Oh, OK. Uh, not I against the Minions, but it was one of those things where I was like, I don't want to see the Minion movie enough to like miss this like thing for somebody I care about. So, oh, yeah. OK, I see. I see. Like, I thought you thing. were just like. I'm coming to visit about... you, Lash, and you just don't oh. know. Oh, boy. I thought you were going to say, like, you know, I thought about long and hard, and I was just like, <laughs> I don't want to see the Minions. I mean, <laughs> I would be perfectly happy not watching the Minions movie. I really, like, I, I don't care. Well, we we have to review that next week, right? That's the review. We do? I didn't I watch know. the last one. What do you want from me? Uh, You mean the first Minions movie or Despicable Me 3? The first Minions and Despicable Me 3. The last of these things I saw was Despicable Me 2, and I fell asleep. Uh... And- I actually thought the Minions movie, uh, contrary to popular opinion, was fine. Wow. I okay. thought it was enjoyable as pure fluff. All right. Uh, you know, power to you. But um, yeah, so I think that'll be on the top 10. Sure. And then Elvis, I think it would be around like number nine or 10. Maybe out of the top 10. Who knows? But let's talk about Elvis. Latest film from Boz Lerman, who look. Boz Lerman, the person. He kind of confounds me a bit. I actually don't know how I feel about him overall as a film director, but I do know that he made a movie that is extremely important to me. Now, Great Gatsby, whatever. I I watched that movie on like a DVD in a car, and I was like, this is pretty Boslerman, sure. Australia, excessive upon excessive. I couldn't stand it. Um, and one of those things, what the thing about Australia too, is like, I was working in a theater as a projectionist when that movie came out. And I remember being so annoyed with it, having to thread all the film and everything for like two platters oh, wow. because it was so long. I thought yeah. that'd be a, a three reeler. It was two reels, but it was, they were huge. They were huge. Okay. I would, I would have thought three reels, but all right. Now Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge is a very important movie to me. Moulin Rouge is special. Um, changed my life. And, you know, people, since I've seen it, have said things like, Moulin Rouge is terrible. Uh, you should feel bad right. for liking it. Well, I haven't said um, that. One of the worst movies ever made. I didn't go that um, far. Everyone involved should be embarrassed. I don't oh, care. Yeah, I think I have said that. Um. <laughs> there, There is a, a popular opinion out there that Moulin Rouge is, is actually bad. And I don't care. You can People can say what they want to say. I love Moulin Rouge. I've rewatched I, it so many times. I love yeah. the music. I love the performances. I love the nonsense of it. I just love it. I, I don't think it's actually really that bad. I just kind of get confounded when I remember like that movie was up, up for like four or five Oscars, including Best Picture. I, that like, surprises that? me as well, because to me, it's my personal trash. I don't look at it as like some kind of award winning like or award nominated. And that's the thing is like my connection to it has nothing to do with like the play or anything that came before. Okay. I watched it when it came out. I was 10 when this movie came sure. out. It radicalized a young John Negroni. OK, right. He didn't yeah, know I what mean, he was watching. 
Like, I would get it if it was like a repo, the genetic opera sort of situation where people are like, look, it's not very good, but I vouch for it. It's a fun time. I like its campy enthusiasm. I'd be like, OK, I get that. I have I, entire sequences memorized. The Roxanne sequence I dream about. Um, I have elephant remember. love medley completely down to the word, the cadence of the voice. Like hmm. I love these songs. I love the Elton John cover, and that to me would be blasphemous for any other. Even Rocket Man couldn't get that right, right? I don't know. I mean, the only thing I really, really remember about uh, Moulin Rouge is uh, Nicole Kimmons' weird dance. Oh, God. Ewan McGregor's Blue Blue Eyes and uh, Jim Broadband's whole performance. So you forget the part with the moon comes to life, Will Ashton, and joins in the chorus. And you forgot. Whatever. Who cares? When was the last time you watched this movie? Uh, Just admit it. It had to be in my teenage years. I don't know when exactly. Oh, but. interesting. Will, Will, we got it. We got to have a rewatch. We got to do it. Pass. A drunk rewatch of Moulin Rouge. The listeners want it. I want yeah. it. Pass. You don't know that you want it yet. But, you know, for as much as I kind of... Uh, trying to change the subject so you don't have disparage, to... Disparage uh, Baz Luhrmann. I don't hate um, that movie or uh, Romeo plus Juliet. Romeo and Juliet's good. Yeah, yeah, you gotta do the plus sign. I, yeah, I watched that too when it came out. Um, that was the first Baz I saw that one I ever saw. concurrent with, I think, is it the 60s or 70s one? Uh, one, 60s, I think you're talking about the, one of the earlier adaptations. I mean, there have been countless Romeo and Juliet movies. Yeah, but the, the one no, we watched in high school was yeah, it was like that era. No, but there was that one I think because we were reading the book in high school, and then we'd like watch like a scene from each film as, mm-hmm. after we read the chapter. So I watched. It was just like very jarring to go from like reading the Shakespeare text, watching the original film, and then just seeing Baz Luhrmann's take of it, like in in the uh, proper se- or like improper sequence, I guess it was just like a bizarre way to watch that film. But, you know, I will say that like, uh, the man makes choices. I guess <laughs> that's where I stand on. Is that like, he makes choices. I don't think a lot of them make sense. I don't really agree with a lot of them, but I admire his ability to be like, I'm going to make some big capital C choices in a film and he has enough capital and enough sway at Warner Brothers that people are like, yeah, sure, you can make that choice. And he does. And they're screened in theaters worldwide. And audiences respond to it however they respond to it. It's just like, I mean, that's that's something, I guess. So tons of Romeo and Juliet movies. I'm looking at them now. Um, a lot of them are made for TV. A lot of them are TV adaptations. The one I was thinking about is 1968. Um, this is the one. Yeah, that's that, the one I was thinking of. Yeah, that's yeah, one we saw. The Franco Zeffirelli one. The one with um, Olivia. Who's Olivia Hussey. Yeah. Hussey. Yeah. And uh, uh, Lawrence Olivier. Yeah. It's one of the higher profile ones for sure. Uh, I think the other one, like the, the first one, uh, I think it was the first one is the silent film, but I think it's lost at this point. just like 1916, according to this. But uh, yeah, I, I'm a fan of Bob take on it. I think it's fine. Uh, but Strictly Ballroom is another one that I enjoy. Okay, uh, that I haven't, haven't rewatched really, it in quite a bit, but that's the one I haven't seen, so I have no opinion on that one. It's um, worth checking out. Um, but yeah, I was gonna say Australia. I mean, that was like his attempt to make like an old-fashioned melodrama, right? Like an epic, romantic melodrama. Yes, very sweeping. Something that I would usually like, and I like Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman quite a bit. And I, I yeah, it's just uh, 
I just don't remember it. I found it to be very kind of boring and Slow. forgettable when, it's too I, long. when I watched. Yeah. But he was like too trying long. to go against his impulses there, I think. Like he was kind of trying to do something that was like melodramatic, but in the service of like an old fashioned moving drama. It just didn't really work. It sounds like from what I can recall. I remember like Roger Ebert was kind to the film and I think he compared it to Gone with the Wind, you know, like was not uh not not in like a it's as good but a sort of like it's it's shooting through that sort of thing i, I vaguely remember what, what else he said about it but it that movie had its fans sure i if you say so uh a movie i know it does have its fans uh it was as you mentioned the great gatsby his uh take on the you know uh seminal american novel the great yeah. American novel, a, mo- uh, a movie it- that does fit his style a little bit more like the style that we know him for that time period, the roaring 20s, Leonardo DiCaprio as an actor. I think like those are ingredients uh, to something really working with the boss, I think. I think like it's certainly that movie uh, lends itself to like what Elvis is. Yeah, but I feel like there it's clear like the maximalist approach of that is in the service of like getting you in the headspace of the characters and like kind of expanding upon the themes of the original, you know, uh, original novel of the, of, uh, the same name and all that. But I just feel like that one doesn't really work as well because the main character of that Nick Carraway is not super energetic or unreliable in that respect. Like, you know, he can be, uh, you know, like he's not like uh, a perfect person or anything. He's a flawed protagonist, but he's not, uh, you know, keyed into Baz Luhrmann's sensibilities. And certainly Tobey Maguire's performance, I think, leaves something to be desired. So I just find that movie to be uh, interesting, but just kind of tedious and flawed. But I, mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but to me, Great Gatsby and Elvis share the same issue. The first like act is the best part. Uh, in my opinion, uh, I actually disagree. No, I got to disagree. I think the second act of Elvis is much better than the first. Well, actually, we'll not talk much about better, it. a little bit better. Before we get to it, um, I do want to mention the Get Down, the Netflix show that he created or co-created, um, wasn't a success. I mean, th- th- I remember the thing with the Get Down was that it was just way too expensive. It was like ten million an episode, and like nobody watched it. It had like <laughs> Jaden Smith in it, Justice right. Smith, I think, and it was about like the invention of rap or like how rap became popular in New York. Yeah, you're telling me. I can't believe I remember that much. Um, it was very whatever. Jimmy Smith was in it, though. And so that was why some of us came out anyway. We were like, you know what? Turn on Netflix. It's time. Sure. But uh, that's, was that was like, the last thing he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just could not care about you that couldn't, show. You couldn't bring yourself to care about that one. I don't blame you. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. Elvis is his latest effort. And that's the thing. He he, he doesn't do a ton of movies. Uh, and he takes a lot of time in between. He tries to make it feel worth it, right? He, he spends a lot of time on these things. They've been filming this since covid uh, Tom Hanks got COVID uh, while he was filming this. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, it stars him. It also stars Austin Butler as Elvis Presley. Tom Hanks plays his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Uh, also in the cast, Olivia DeJong, Helen Thompson, Richard Roxborough, Calvin Harrison Jr., and plenty more. This is a movie that is covering basically the broad strokes of Elvis's life uh, from when he's a kid in the 1930s, uh, so Great Depression era, all the way up to his death in 1970s. Uh, I think 1977 was the year he died. And so, lots of, lots to say about this movie. Obviously, it's a very... It's, it's Boz. It's Boz Lorman. This thing is loud and it's weird. We've, we've talked a lot about biopics on this show. We talked about movies like 
Rocket Man, Bohemian Rhapsody, Respects. Um, what was the one? Uh, Julie Garland. I wasn't on that episode, but uh, her oh, movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was it called? Was it called Just Judy? Was it Judy? I, uh, it could have been. Um, but yeah, that was the one that was just like, you know, a moment of her life and it had like flashbacks, right? We've talked about plenty of stuff like that, right? And in terms of Elvis, uh, clearly this is one of those movies where, first of all, I do not think Boz Lerman is even aware. Like if you came up to Boz Lerman and you're like, hey, Boz, uh, have you ever heard... Do you know the existence of the movie Walk Hard? He will look at you funny. He'd be like, what did you just tell me to do? <laughs> I don't think he knows it exists. But at the same time, I did get the sense that this movie is like kind of trying to be a little different from like other biopics. It's a little bit flashier. The editing is more crisscross. There's just more flourish. There's more fancy stuff here. There's more of an attempt to make this thing mythic. Um, in my review of it, I called it like... He's basically taking the fable of Elvis and trying to make a fable of a movie in response. It plays super fast and loose with the story of Elvis. So a lot of the real life details are mixed up. The movie takes some turns that I, I, I can't say that I'm totally on board with, especially the way it handles Colonel Tom Parker. I hate the Tom Hanks performance. I think it's horrific. Every time he was on screen, I thought it ruined everything that was going on before it. But I think Austin Butler here no, is fantastic. I loved Austin Butler in this. He makes the movie. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, so when you were saying before, it's like, are you going to harp on Austin Butler? <laughs> yeah, you get it ready. Sure. Um, I hate this movie, Will. All right. I also love it. Okay. I'm so conflicted. All right. I think that it's, there's so many things here that I'm like, yeah, mm, delicious. And then other things where I'm spitting it out. I'm like, this is poison. Get this out of my life. There was a review. I forget who said it. We're watching this movie. It's like being stuck in a washing machine. Honestly, I felt like it was like Boz Lerman was trying to make me feel like how Elvis felt when he was on Too Many Painkillers. I mean, that, that's kind of like how it ends up. That's why I don't like the last part of the movie. At that point, I'm tired. I'm worn out. And everything that was working for me was like up until we get to the part where his film career happens and it's like a dress in a montage. And I just felt like at that point that Boz is like gliding through, just like soaring past the dude's life. And we're just missing mm -hmm. so much. Yeah, they don't I, even. Uh, I don't know. They don't even show like Jailhouse Rock, which I found kind of fascinating. They don't. They don't have a moment in the movie where they're they're showing like Elvis doing the thing that they always do, like in Bohemian Rhapsody, where they write "We will rock you." You know, like they mm. don't do anything like that. Like where it's like, oh, this is Elvis is like we we need a song to, to do the big show, right? Yeah. Um, they I kind. I guess they kind mm. of do with like the protest song, sort mm -hmm. of. Nah, nah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so. Uh, as I kind of mentioned before with my takeaway of The Great Gatsby, um, I, I just feel like like I, I think I respect, uh, especially nowadays, I think what uh, he was trying to do with that material. Like I said, like it's more about like exploring the just sort of like access and the depravity of the time, but doing it in a more modern sensibility and something that's very singular to him, but also respecting the text, which is basically what he was trying to do with uh, Romeo and Juliet. I think in that film more successfully than Great Gatsby. I just felt like I think it works for something like uh, um, Romeo and Juliet because, like you said, there are, you know, however many adaptations of Romeo and Juliet. So he's like, OK, if we're going to do this again, let's do it for a younger audience and make it hipper and make it weirder, but also like not moving away from the original text. 
And I, I think with Great Gatsby, one issue is that like there are like maybe like one or two other adaptations of that book. So it's just like it feels more offensive to kind of do that with that book, I guess, because it just seems, you know, m- more uh, disparaging to like this, you know, key novel of uh, American history. But I think with Elvis, the myth of Elvis has been so prolificated over time. It's something that I remember learning about in history class. Like, I can't think of any other pop really? culture. We figure. didn't learn about him. Yeah. Like there was like a day or two in I think like 11th grade history where it might've been like a week or so. Like I remember learning about Elvis and his relationship to American history and how he like influence uh, rock and roll music, the changing of the tides. Uh, also like, you know, the uh, incorporation of rock and roll into, you know, modern pop culture. Uh, and I think like you were saying before, like I think the idea here with Baz Luhrmann is like, he's trying to kind of take the rote, biopic approach but like put it on speed and do it more in like an Amadeus sort of way where it's not directly from Elvis's first person perspective we're seeing it from his manager this sort of yeah. cold clinical we're seeing it from the perspective figure. of the villain yeah which I mean I think is a more fascinating way to tackle this story for two main reasons one I think it kind of respects the fabulism of Elvis's life story. Cause like everything about Elvis's life is kind of built on these sort of exaggerated mythical ideas. Like certainly like he kind of built that up later in his life when he was like drugged out and like trying to get Richard Nixon to like make him like a, you know, sworn agent or whatever. Uh, Which, and uh, just there's was, a movie right with uh, yeah. Michael Shannon. Um, mm-hmm. covering that they don't even get to it in this film. Yeah, they I don't guess. even talk about it in this movie. yeah yeah i guess they were like that movie already exists whatever um but you know i mean i think it's like elvis's life is so larger than life by design and it's so hard to fit that into a three-hour film that rather than just kind of go beat by beat by beat it's just like we're just kind of gonna respect his like whole showman personality but i think the one reason i'm a little bit more favorable of this film than your typical baz Luhrmann film is i think his style fits the Colonel character more because what? he is a he's like this showman type. He is like this guy who comes from this carnival background. They go to great lengths to show that he uh, is of an uncertain background. There's not a lot. There's he's sort of an enigma and he's not someone who can be easily trusted, but he is someone who is prone to fabrication, prone to just indulging in lies and like kind of grand uh, delusions. And I think if we follow the film from his perspective, Baz Luhrmann's choices make a lot more sense. But I think the film, like to your point, I think where the second half kind of has trouble is that it sort of tries to split the difference between focusing on Elvis and focusing on the Colonel character. And when we actually focus more on Elvis, it does rapidly slow down, which, you know, after, uh, you know, an enclave, of choices from the first 90 minutes of the movie can seem like whiplash. I think it's intentional, but I, I think that can seem uh, like an odd, like shift in tone. But I mean, I think that moment, those moments actually kind of connected me to the film in a way that I found the first half to be kind of tedious and excessive uh, understanding what it's trying to do, but also just like not really be on board, just getting your kind of typical whiplash experience from Baz, just making 
choice after choice after choice in a you know frenetic over stylized way to the point where it's like if this is going to be three hours of this i'm just going to be exhausted and i think the fact that he kind of reins himself back by the end and finds some gravity and pathos and you know even some elegance in elvis's story makes me a lot more sympathetic towards this style of a baz Luhrmann film than his past few films including moulin rouge yeah i can't i can't get on the same page with you all the way there because I think the thing, the parts of this movie I like the most are where, kind of to what you're saying, we slow down a bit with Elvis. We focus on him. Um, There, there are scenes in this where that are transcendent. Logically, they're ridiculous, and even conceptually, they're arguably offensive. Uh, Specifically, scenes involving, you know, the the cross cutting between Elvis's backstory, um, him being involved in a Pentecostal revival, seeing himself as a superhero, and then crossing that with like this early performance that he did. And like to that, me, it's yeah. such a creative mm-hmm. way to get across the the mythicism of Elvis. Like, what was special about this guy? Because you can't just have Austin Butler on stage just kind of doing his thing because he can't perfectly embody Elvis. But what you can do is you can edit everything together to capture the emotion of watching it, which is where I think the movie is, is extremely successful. And I actually mm-hmm. think that his style fits. Um, well, yeah, those I mean, scenes work for me perfectly. I think I, I'm not a fan of the Pentecostal scene just because I, I, I think I respect what it's doing. I just find it to be kind of nauseating and offensive in what it's I do doing. agree it's offensive. Um, uh, and I, I think the movie is not able. Like, I don't think it's capable of like handling the nuance of Elvis oh, and like what he how he appropriated different things. There, and There is that, such a. There's a fascinating movie there about the way that he ripped off these black artists that he was friends with and right. took their stuff, merged it together with his own thing and made his own thing out of it. And it's a hard thing to parse because like it, it it's like, does he recognize the privilege of it? We're never really going to know. He probably did and didn't care because he was successful. And the movie just my thing with it is the reaction to that or like instead of having a point of view or trying to like push push back on that as like a regret or something instead it recontextualizes it around him doing one protest song when martin luther king jr dies and when robert kennedy dies like okay like it's so limp honestly yeah i mean i'm there mm -hmm. yeah i think for me what i find more offensive is like kind of tries to have its cake and eat it too where it's like acknowledging that he got his influence from black artists and r&b artists and blues scene but like trying to act like, oh, no, he was like friends with all these artists. So it, it's like, OK. And he was. And like, but like, certainly but like the movie tries like, to like he still ripped them off. That. No, that's what yeah, I'm trying yeah. to like. I feel like the movie tries to like use that like as an excuse. Kind of like, yeah, well, yeah, like, yeah. I see what you're he's saying. He's like friends with these guys. So like, is it really it's a that good bad? thing that he did this because it, you know, no, it didn't. Because like it, people don't know that Hound Dog started off you know, as a song sung by a black woman. And like, yeah, I could see Bosler being like, well, you know, it's fine because I show that in the movie and laid hip hop over it for some reason. Yeah. It's, that's kind of bizarre. Like I said, I hate this movie, but like, it's so hard for me to hate it because I still watch that scene is still so effective uh, just in the way that it gets its point across, even though I find the point itself to be nauseating. Like you said, to me, now, that gets into like the great Gatsby stuff where it's like, I can respect what it's doing on paper and execution. I just find it kind of nauseating. Well, that's the thing is then you get to a scene. You get two more scenes from this movie that I think work really well. 
you get the the song that he does uh, right before they ship him off to the military, um, where he kind of decides to do things his way or whatever. Uh, where I think that, that that whole thing, I'm just like, I'm there. Like, I'm on the stage with Elvis. I'm feeling like the battle of that moment and the, just the hype, the sheer hype of being on that stage. And then additionally, when he's doing his like comeback thing. My thing is that like, we go into all this other territory with Elvis. We we kind of gloss over the fact that Priscilla Presley was, I think, like, what, 14? <laughs> like, when he was uh, courting yeah, her? I think, I think 13 or 14, yeah. Yeah, he was in his 20s at that point. Um, you know, this is while he was in Germany serving. And then the 60s, like, eight eight years or so of of just, like, we just don't really, like, we get, like, one montage and I find that such a weird move because I feel like it's like blinking I mean, you'll miss an entire decade of the dude. And it's I a very pivotal decade for him. Uh, I mean, I actually kind of respect that choice. And I think it's because if we're going to see it from Elvis's slash the Colonel's perspective. Yeah. Like they're so caught up in the moment that it's just going to whiz by. Like, I mean, it's just like they're going to it's such a like frantic time in, his, in their lives that it is going to go by in a blur. And that feels like it's kind of replicating that in a way that like when I was watching, I was like, well, are we really going to just like skirt past like all of this stuff? And I think it makes sense if, in that like even at like basically three hours, like they really have to condense the story down by a ton. Like there's just so much about Elvis's life that happened that they just cannot get into. And rather than like just try to like do like a beat by beat by beat thing in a way that kind of plots it out in a you know, grinding halt, like plots it down to like, you know, a, a more tedious way. I feel like doing it in the sort of stylistic fashion actually makes some sense. I just think that like, they kind of miss an opportunity. Like they just, they do a lot of sh- just telling in this instead of showing, they say things just like you're washed up now, Elvis. And I'm just like, well, show us that, you know, show an example of like one of the performances he does or show him just being like constantly embattled by the Beatles or do something where it, I, it gets the point mm-hmm. across. But instead, it's just sort of like so much of this movie is just like dialogue that it could have been done sure. in, in a movie where a lot of other things are delivered more creatively. That stuff to me is like so basic that I'm confused. Like what mm-hmm. movie I'm watching? Uh, I mean, I think I feel that way about like the third act. Which that's why I really don't like skirts. The third act. I think it really skirts around like the the more chaotic, like overweight phase of uh, like the very does, severely yeah. unhealthy part of Elvis's life in a way that I'm really kind of surprised because Baz Luhrmann, a man of bombast and not someone who is of uh, good sense or restraint uh, or anything that you know resembles like you know. Uh, holding back in any way. I, I I find it kind of fascinating, especially given Tom Hanks' performance, that he just didn't go into that really much at all in a way that I, I think seems deliberate in that, like, it's kind of trying to do in, like, differentiating the two characters. But I also respect that, like, I don't know, it just seems odd that they just didn't go into that much. Well, yeah, I mean, and the main reason, well, the main reason I just like the third act it's not really for that, even though I also am a little perplexed by it, even though I wanted the movie to be over by that point. My main issue is that I just think it, it then starts to become every other biopic. It just it just goes right into that territory. It's, you know, he's a victim of his own success. They try to do this one angle where there's like a lot of like regret where he's like in his own sort of, you know, jailhouse where he basically can't leave the country because of this Tom Parker guy. He's trapped. And 
I don't know. I, I think I already kind of mentioned that I think that the Tom Parker performance doesn't work for me at all because I just find it way too cartoonish and the accent really bothers me. And it's just I can't see past that. It's Tom Hanks, you know, and I get it. He had a hard job here because like Tom Parker had a very weird accent, like no doubt. Like, I don't I don't think it was like an easy thing for him to get through an actor. But I think Tom Hanks always kind of struggles with accents, to be honest. And I just do not think that, that was the right casting. Like, I think somebody else could have killed this role. Give me Stanley um, Tucci as Tom Parker. Let's go. You don't, you disagree? Oh, the uh, Tucci would have killed it. I don't know. I mean, so I'm kind of a multiple minds on the Tom Hanks performance here. You and, think it would have been I mean, Gary Oldman, don't you? No. I Well, speaking of Gary Oldman, because I kind of lends itself to Darkest Hour, uh, I, I don't like this trend right now where... Uh, Actors, because they're more famous, just get put in fat suits yeah. and take away from, you know, plus size actors in, in roles like, you know, I mean, if we're going to do like that, I would think like John Goodman would be incredible in this. I think if he could it had the chance to do this. But, you know, I mean, I, I just find uh, that trend to be kind of annoying. But I, I get that, like in this movie, Tom Hanks is supposed to be this just grotesque off-putting bizarrely charismatic but also just like resentful spiteful man the same mr rogers uh, that's for sure and i well that's why i find fascinating about casting tom hanks is that like we really haven't seen tom hanks do a role like this before he's like, america's we've dad we've seen shades of it in like like people compare it to like the lady killers performance. yes lady colors is and, like the first that i go to and like it, there's a little bit of this in like the Cockney gangster guy that he plays in uh, Cloud Atlas. Um, but like it's really a performance that's unlike most others that we've seen from Tom Hanks. But it is playing into, like you said, like that American dad type thing. Like there's that scene with them on the Ferris wheel and he's and Tom Hanks is just saying these utterly bizarre things. Just like snow or was it show business is snow business. And just like he's that's another thing. Absurd. A lot of the writing in this is extremely bizarre. This is <laughs> yeah. uh, a big screenplay too. Uh, Lerman co-wrote it along with like four other people or three other people. But you have to like like there's something very apparently just, you know, uh, cynical and capitalistic about this character. It has to be on the like at face level. But you have to also kind of understand why someone like Elvis would be drawn into this guy. And I think the Ferris wheel scene, while not perfect, at least kind of I think casting Tom Hanks to play that part makes sense because you need someone who is innately charismatic and uh you know sure but i think there's way. so many other actors that could have been just not as if not more was, charismatic sure i just i mean that's why i say that the casting of tom hanks in that role is just so fascinating to me because it's playing into what we expect of tom hanks but also going wildly against it and giving us a performance that is so uniquely mm. different See, than what we've seen from tom hanks at this point to me it reeks of we need an a-list actor and that could have been it i mean i don't know I think that's what it is, because Austin Butler, he's not super well known. We, we saw him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, he was like not one of the main characters, but he was in like Glee. Like he was in, you know, some TV stuff, but like he's not super well known. And this Didn't is he his from movie. A, he's like a Disney Channel star. Yeah, right? yeah. He was in a bunch of Disney things. But that's the thing. 
he just absolutely you know in this kind of movie he owns it but they needed some they needed somebody on the marquee right it's like okay austin butler and and i think Todd, you know tom hanks is like one of the most a-list like get people to especially this demographic to the you, theater that you could get right you don't think just like having the name elvis is just like a marquee enough on its own i don't know because there have been a bunch of elvis movies and i think i think the but not think, in this way, like not theatrically in this way. I still think that like for this crowd, for this demographic, name recognition does mean something. It adds legitimacy. Oh, for sure. Right? Yeah, I'm not doubting that. I'm just saying that like I, I'm not as convinced that that's for sure what happened here. I'm fairly convinced. And yeah, I just don't think it worked out in this case. And I think that like once we get to like the last part of it, like I mentioned before, it's just the whole thing with him in the hotel, the whole thing where like drugs take over and all of a sudden he's having marriage problems and like all these things start to happen. And I'm just like, the rest of the movie wasn't really building up to this. It wasn't, it wasn't. And there, that's the thing. There are shades of really good things here. I like how this movie gets around Elvis as just a caricature, as a clown. He, you know, the whole thing where Elvis is like a Halloween costume now, and the the whole Elvis impersonation thing. It's it's a staple of American culture at this point, right? Like yeah, Elvis is perceived a certain way. Mm-hmm. I think there should have been a scene where like El- the real Elvis is in an elevator with like a bunch of Elvis impersonators and they're all like, you know, something like that. I think that would have been fun. I think the movie needs something like that. It personally. needed fun. Sure. But no, it. it, it oh, I, thing, I think the movie has fun stuff in it, to be sure. I think it needed more self-aware stuff in it. I, I think that like once you get to that point in his life, the 70s, you stop taking it as seriously. And so, yeah, I think that's where Boz just didn't have as sure of a footing as he did in the 50s and 60s. That's my take. And yeah, like once, I don't uh, know, once we get to all the de- more depressing stuff, I just feel like there's a better way to handle it. I mean, that seems to be the common opinion that I've read so far, but I just find that the stuff like you said, the, the more depressing 30, like Elvis is 30, 40 something to be more interesting than the the stuff that's like kind of gaudy and like exploitative at the beginning, but I find to be kind of shallow in comparison to the more emotionally hefty stuff towards the second half, which I think is more a credit to uh, Austin Butler's performance. But I also like that um, Baz Luhrmann has enough restraint during those moments. So like, like I said, he's like, there is this kind of metaphorical idea of like the hotel is literally like jailing him in. He's like a prisoner to his fame. And also this uh, contestable character who is just like, holding him uh, against his will, basically. And I find that stuff to be really interesting and something I I, I, I understand from Baz Luhrmann's perspective why he made that decision creatively or narratively, I mean. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I can see as terms of like exploring Elvis as a person, that's maybe not the most uh, conductive way of telling this story. Yeah, it's a weird movie. It's It's one that I think is going to be talked about a lot um, as we get more biopics and more you know, musical biopics and kind of examining the, the, the way that that genre continues to change and find ways to be more original to get around all the walk hard jokes, I guess. Uh, I, w- I was hoping they would do like a wrong kid died at one point. Uh, no, it didn't happen. Um, Though the stuff with Elvis's mom is super weird in this movie, too. It is. We it didn't is even definitely, talk about that. Yeah. yeah, there's a bit of an Oedipus thing going on here that I was happy to see because it was a swing. Um, in terms of like the character writing, that's the thing is like the style here goes so big. 
like the way that he does the transitions, the way that he stages the musical numbers. So that to me is the big issue with the movie is like there's a weird imbalance between that stuff, which I think is really fun. It's style. It's something that I want to see on the big screen to these really ho-hum and awkwardly written dialogue scenes that are flat uh, with very few exceptions. I do think like the Ferris wheel and the, the House of Mirrors, those are good examples of doing it well because, I don't know, they felt like dynamic scenes. But then other moments, like any time with him and his mom, I'm just like, what are we doing? Uh, what's, uh, do you, is he going to have yeah, sex with his mom? scene in the bedroom with her is just like, what are we, where are yeah, we going? Yeah, guys? yeah, when he's just like, you know, grieving her death, like smelling her clothes and stuff. I'm like, okay, uh, Oh yeah, and then right. uh, and then the colonel just like I can feel her position for you, like I can be your new mommy. And he's like, turn around. I, I'm just like, well, I don't know, man. I, yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, what's doing there, man? <laughs> you ain't my mama now. Well, since my mama left me, <laughs> you ain't my mama now. I'm like, <laughs> no, thank you very much. <laughs> no, so, thank you, man. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm very conflicted on this movie. Do you re- like finishing it out? Who do you recommend it to? I I, I don't know. I recommend uh, it to people who take risks. <laughs> I guess. I mean, rarely do I really gauge the room when I see a movie, but like in terms of like the crowd I was with, I really wanted to just kind of like hear their perspective on it. I didn't get the chance. Like I didn't like I, I, you know, for one, I say during the credit story movies just because I like to respect the filmmakers, but also like I just, you know, I, I I'm not weird in the, enough to like ask strangers what they thought of a film. But, uh, you know, I would be I would love to uh you know, gauge the room and just be like, was this the movie you expected to be? Is this true to what you like about Elvis? Like, you know, just kind of pull the audience that, you know, is like 70 plus seeing this film. Uh, because I really don't know, like I, I, for the target audience of this, presumably, you know, people who grew up with Elvis and love Elvis and, uh, you know, have that deep affection for him and his life and the myth of Elvis. I would love to know if this is, what they want. I mean, like my grandmother, huge Elvis fan. I've been trying to figure out, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to hear her review of this film. because <laughs> I, I have no idea what she's going to think of this, but you know, I mean, I, I, I think the, the target audience here, I guess, is people who really like Baz Luhrmann and are excited that this is the first original movie of his. And are there are a lot of people a, like that. Nearly a decade. I mean, based on all these them, people that like all these people that like Moulin Rouge, I guess. I mean, <laughs> and the great Gatsby. I get that. But uh, yeah, I just don't know how many civilians, you know, any like non film obsessives are really following along with the Baz Luhrmann career. Honestly, I don't know, man. I mean, I was expecting to be more positive on this film than you were. But, you know, here we are. I mean, I I, I think it's kind of funny, actually. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Hey, that's the unpredictability of doing Cinemaholics. Let's play the Rotten Tomatoes game. Speaking of unpredictability, uh, let's see sure. what you can predict. I mean, is that our final thoughts? I mean, I would say so. That's that's all I had. I said I said last thing. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I was, yeah. I mean, I was just saying that like, yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with you that I feel like anyone that makes a biopic at this point, like it should be a required text to watch walk hard and be like, okay, just know that like this movie exists and that you, if you play into any of these tropes, you're going to be laughed at by a sizable portion of the internet. It's like, Elvis, what are you doing? He has to think about his whole life before mm -hmm. he goes on stage at the international. And also that movie has like, a definitive take on Elvis in, in the form of my, uh, Jack White's <laughs> uh, cameo, which is great. Yeah, um, yeah. I was rewatching that today. 
I don't know. Like I said, I, I like you. I guess I'm kind of torn uh, as an Elvis biopic. I don't really feel like I, I like got a defining the documentary. Of- is much better. Searcher. Which one? I was going to say there's like tons of documentaries about that's Elvis, that's one so. of the more recent ones. It's long. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I think it's like four hours long. I think you can find the whole thing on YouTube, actually, um, for free, if I'm not wrong. Sure. And it's, yeah, much better than this. Yeah, My I don't opinion. know. I mean, I, I think I'm more intrigued by the film as like a commentary on like the themes that I think Baz likes to explore, like access and the depravity of like pop culture and just culture as a general in general. I mean, uh, I think that stuff lends itself well to this film more so than The Great Gatsby. As an Elvis film, I don't know. I think as a showcase for Austin Butler, it's pretty amazing. This is a star uh, perform. Like this could be a star making performance for the guy. Mm-hmm. Do you think he'll get awards consideration for this? I or think, do you think so. It's yeah. Like, you think it's going to be a Rocket Man situation where it'll just get overlooked because it's coming out in the summer? Let's let's see what happens with Tiff and Telluride. But yeah, I think that this guy has real. Like he's going to be in the conversation for a while. But we'll at see. At least going to be people. Like. There's at least going to be people championing if he doesn't get nominated. People being like, "How could you forget?" I mean, Austin this. Butler. I think this is better than Rami Malek and Bohemian Rhapsody. So I would agree with that. Um, I don't know if it's as good. I, I might uh, favor Taron Egerton's performance. I was about to say, Man. I think it's on par. Which I th- I think Taron Egerton was terrific in Rocket Man. Got no yeah. you know attention for it, which is tragic. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think what the do you mo- do? these I think these movies are kind of in a similar camp. Whereas, like, I think both are elevated by the central performance. The big difference, though, uh, being that this this is summer. You know, Rocket Man was early, like late spring, and Bohemian Rhapsody was November. I mean, uh, like, that's what it Rocket tends to come summer. down to, right? It was like May, summer movie season. Late, okay, I, th- I, th- I was thinking late springish, but okay. No, it was like the same weekend as uh, Godzilla: King of the Monsters. Okay, this is this is heat of the summer, though. This is like June. Late yeah. June. This is Warner Brothers' only summer movie, right? That's right. They're putting a lot of yeah. they're putting a lot of heft on this, and that's kind of sad, actually, when you think about it. Thirty million opening, just um, like the Colonel. They're putting all their chips in one basket in the <laughs> form of Elvis. Pay their debts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, yeah. The irony there is, I didn't even think about that, but wow. Think of what the, the Warner Brothers thing. Yeah, because Warner Brothers is hugely in debt because everything they did yeah, last year that's true. Flopped, except for like Dune. And this, right. like, summer they're just putting all their chips into the Elvis basket to pay off their debts. Yeah. So, well, I'm going to look up again what their next film is, right? Because I think they also have DC League of Super Pets, right? Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know how that's going to do. I have that in my in like top 10 domestic. I think as a kid's movie, it, it might do okay. Um, you have that in the I top can, five of your summer movie. No, not, it's in the back half. <laughs> it's like number nine, I want to say. And your summer like, movie right Oh, wait, sorry. I was thinking of Pause of Fury. No, no, no. <laughs> sorry. Will. <laughs> they do. Okay, okay, so they do have Don't Worry Darling um, that they're doing with New Line. Um, oh, yeah. I saw a trailer for that before. This but their movie. next looks good. Their next big blockbuster is going to be Black Adam in October. Also kind saw of a, a trailer while for from that. Now. And then they have uh, Creed 3 and Shazam. And then it's oh, going to yeah. be kind of quiet till March. Mm-hmm. I thought Shazam got pushed it last year. Is that coming out this year? Um, it, This could be old data. Um, I thought Shazam was next summer, so I, I don't know what's what. Uh, okay, I thought, I'm seeing December twenty first. Okay, I forget. I, I thought that got pushed back, but maybe it didn't. I don't know. It uh, hasn't been updated yet on here. If that's know. the case, but I, anyway, yeah. that was a tangent. Let's talk about the Rotten Tomatoes game. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, as long as long as uh, it's not uh, the Flash, right? <laughs> Um, okay, so Will Ashton, we have 254 reviews counted for Elvis. 
What do you think the Rotten Tomatoes score is? Have you seen um, it at any point? No. Okay. My friend almost spoiled it when I, because we did double feature today of this and the Black Phone, which we'll be discussing in a bit. Some we friend. Got Panera. They don't listen to Cinemaholics. They don't know about the Rotten Tomatoes game. We were at Panera getting some lunch, and he was like, "Hey, did you see the Rotten Tomatoes yeah, score?" And I had tomato to be like, soup. <laughs> and I had to be like, "Nope." And I'm playing the Rotten Tomatoes game tonight, so you better not spoil it. And they're like, what? And I was <laughs> What's like, What's exactly. the Rotten Tomatoes game? Yeah, Never heard of Cinemaholics. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think he's familiar with the podcast. Um, if he is listening, hello. I hope the Panera is good. Yeah, do you want to say hello to my friend? Hey, I don't know what your name is, but uh, I hope you enjoy the movie. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, yeah, okay, so the score, uh, Elvis 72%. Elvis. Which what what? I said is it seventy two percent? Your guess is seventy two. It is not seventy two. Do you think it's higher or lower? Uh, lower. It's higher. Oh, okay. It's seventy eight percent. Bit higher than you thought. Now it was eighty percent uh, when the first wave came in, not from Con, but I think like one of the first uh, critic screenings, and then it it dropped to seventy nine, and now it's seventy eight after the weekend settles. So mm-hmm. not bad, not bad, not bad. You know right, who saw them. You know who saw the movie at Con? Um, I think friend of the show Emma Sasek saw it. I want to say, perhaps. I'm pretty you know sure. Else, you know who else saw it? Con. Who? Riley Kino, or however. Riley Kino, the granddaughter of of Elvis yep. Presley. Which yep. you're trying to act like you told me this. I I to me this is new information. I don't know how this is new information. I mentioned this at least a couple of times. Uh, but yeah, that's the granddaughter of Elvis. If you didn't know don't get sassy with me i guess uh yeah so uh sorry what was your question audience score what do we think uh a thousand plus verified ratings this is more complicated than um the critic score because it can go either way too um 68 percent. it is not 68 do you think it's higher or lower uh, it's probably higher it's 94 percent. oh okay so audiences are responding to it audiences are taking one look at elvis and you're like yeah, he, you're right. He's the king. It's um, good to be the king. What about Cinema Score? Cinema Score could go anywhere, right? Uh, what do you think? Sure. Uh, this is B+. Vegas. Like this is their guy. Yeah, uh, B plus, A minus. Ooh, well, you're O for three so far. But let's see if you can bring it in for Letterbox. I just love uh, like this movie portrays Vegas as this like sort of like hell port that their main character is like forced to reside in and leads to his premature death and they're just like yep that's uh-huh, right that's our hometown yeah baby <laughs> we killed Elvis. <laughs> um all right uh letterboxd we have thirty-three thousand watches so far that's actually not very high for a movie of this esteem i'm actually kind of surprised it's that low but uh okay what do you think the average is from zero to five uh 3.4 it's not 3.4 do you think it's higher or lower it's probably like 3.6 say again Probably 3.6. Wow. So you went higher and you gave a guess. And guess what? It was right. So you got it. You just barely skinnier teeth, skinnier teeth. Yeah. And I was quickly glancing like friends of the show. Ryan Oliver gave it three stars. Um, I'm seeing Kristen Lopez gave it three. Corey Woodruff, I know, really liked it. Um, although he didn't rate it on Letterboxd. I saw a tweet that you were saying he, he thought it was quite well, he good. Doesn't, he doesn't put ratings on it. But that is. But sometimes he puts uh, cards. Encouraging. And surprising, considering I know 
he tried to watch, I think, Moulin Rouge last year and could not finish it. So, Well, you know, he was waiting for you. Uh, Kimber Myers gave it three stars. And uh, let's see. I've not seen any other friends of the show on here, like people who actually been on. No, but, Matt Donato? Uh, oh, yeah. Emma Sassett gave it three and a half. Okay. Um, no, I haven't seen. Uh, Isaac Feldberg did not give it anything. Okay. Um, I think he. No review, no lot. Did not like it. Um, because I think he did, he posted his ranking from con and I think it was like at the very bottom. So, okay. Well, I, I'm not surprised. I don't think it's, uh, it's not an Isaac kind of movie, I think, but all right. Well, that, that is Elvis. It is now playing in theaters and we'll see how long it plays in theaters. I don't know. Let's finish the show out though with another review. It's another big, another big, uh, release of the weekend, the black phone. Now we already kind of talked about how this is doing at the box office. It's doing Okay. Um, so far, it's made 35 million worldwide. Most of that, like the vast majority of that's domestic, which is great news. Uh, it's not a big budget movie. In fact, it's 16 to 18 million reported budget. So it's already profitable. And I'm not surprised because guess what? It's Blumhouse. It's universal. They're quite good at taking low budget horror and specifically low budget horror that people haven't heard of. Like people haven't heard of the black phone unless they read the short story. Most of them haven't. And I think that they did a good job marketing this. They did a good job presenting this as a movie people should care about. It stars Ethan Hawke as mm-hmm. the black phone evil dude, but you know, the grabber. I'll, I'll use his Christian name. But yeah. um, it's a, it's a it's a movie with a mostly unknown cast. Ethan Hawke is the biggest name, and at mm-hmm. that, he's not like you know he's not Tom Hanks. He's not somebody who's going to like bring people in the seats. But they still made this movie really appealing, I think, to people. Uh, now, this is directed by somebody with some cachet in the film community. That's Scott Derrickson. And uh, he directs this film uh, with a co-writer, or sorry, with, uh, yeah, co-writer, sorry, C. Robert Cargill, uh, who used to be a film Ooh. critic. Uh, wrote yeah, for, I, I think, Ain't It Cool, right? Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, back in my early teen to early 20 days, I would follow his stuff at Spill.com all the yeah, time. So same. It always, I was always, re- I'm always really happy when I see him credited on a project. I'm like, one of us got out. That's there. Not right. that I was ever, not that I was ever involved with spill, but I mean, just the idea that like a film critic, you know, podcast guy got out there is making movies, living his dream. Good for him. Absolutely. Yeah. So Scott Derrickson, he directed the last Doctor Strange movie. Uh, so not the Sam Raimi one, but the last one before that, the 2016 Doctor Strange with Robert Cargill. Uh, he also did Deliver Us from Evil, and then he, before that, he did Sinister. Um, I think the first one of the first movies he did was a, a short film, and then I think, let's see, Hellraiser, and I think there's another movie before The Day the Earth Stood Still. Terrible movie, um, but th- I think he did another movie in like 2005 that was like. Are you the talking Emily about the Exorcism? Exorcism? Of yeah, Emily yeah, Rose. Yeah. yeah, that's the one. Thank you. I, I, I was having a hard time with that one. Um, done a lot of movies, uh, Scott Derrickson. And I think like whenever he's attached to something, I know he was supposed to do Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness. However, he I think of his own volition, he departed the project to work on this. Um, and they had already been planning yeah. on making this. I'm, I'm a little confused about some of that stuff because same. It's I, unclear. I vaguely remember him leaving the project because the, he couldn't get into the horror stuff but then they hired right. sam raimi <laughs> and it's pretty horror centric so yeah i'm not I, sure i think uh my conspiracy theory ish thing is that i think he just 
uh, wanted to make this, but didn't want to leave on bad terms with uh, Marvel. So I that's think my guess of, too. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that I, I think that they just didn't have a lot of passion for it. Honestly, I think it was a creative differences thing, um, yeah. and it was just like I just want to go make something original, and that's just, that's absolutely what this is. It's based mm-hmm. on. Uh, it's adapted from Joe Hill's short story. Joe Hill is the son of Stephen King. Joe Hill is his pen name. Um, and I think, you know, for obvious reasons, I think that he's somebody who's always wanted to like, make a name for himself and depend on his dad. Uh, the last well, thing I remember seeing that was adapted from him was Horns. I was going to say, I always kind of wondered if the reason why he goes by Joe King or Joe Hill is because he doesn't want to go by a name Joe King. Like, he's joking. That's funny. You know, you You're know hilarious. What I mean? Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but that's uh, but that I mean, is honestly, that his think, given name is Joseph. Well, he could have gone by Joseph King, but you know, but people would be like, "Oh, you must be joking." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm joking. Yeah, right. So, um, anyway, uh, I think he's probably best known for Lock and Key. I think that's probably like the the show, uh, the comic series, I should say, that became a show. And, and uh, is, did he do Heart Shaped Box? He did. I don't know if that's one of his biggest things, but you know. Yeah, That's that like was, I think, debut. his first no- uh, horror novel. Yeah. And he did Nose 4, Rot 2, if you didn't mention that. Yeah, already, I, <laughs> I forgot about that, actually. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, clearly a guy who's been around for quite a while. I think he's in his 50s now, so um, he's a bit older than I think some people understand. But anyway. Jeez. Putting him on the spot there. Little yeah, putting his age out. Yeah. He probably doesn't care. He's, he's Joe over the hill. Um, he named himself that. <laughs> So anyway, uh, this, like I said before, this is Blumhouse and this premiered at Fantastic Fest last year. And I remember when this hit, people were like, yes, this is really good. This is like a really solid horror. You guys are going to love it. Uh, yeah. I got, I heard from some people that was like, this feels like a South by Southwest kind of release that we're getting way early mm-hmm. and which made me surprised. I don't think they played it at South by, but I well, would say that it's that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to say before when you're talking about like the rollout of the film, mm-hmm. I do feel like when it premiered that festival, and uh you know got really high notices i feel like blumhouse was just like rather than put this out in october and kind of step on halloween uh kills toes what if we kind of just do the traditional uh like horror festival thing where it kind of goes from festival 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 builds up a word of mouth and then we'll release it you know uh i guess in this case in the summer and then you know have that kind of word of mouth building up to it so that when it's released people are interested and want to check it out, which I think, I mean, at least as far as the box office and critical reception are concerned, seems to work in its favor. I think so. Yeah, I think people like this because it's it's a bit no nonsense. Like it's it's what you see is what you get, basically. And it's the kind of horror movie where I think people will be like, yeah, you know, like I just want to see like a lean, mean horror movie without any extra frills. Um, that, that to me seems to be what the appeal is for this. And the fact that I think that, you know, critics since it premiered have been kind of, def- you know, championing it a bit. So not to give anything away, of course, the Rotten Tomatoes game, we'll get to that. But the story of this movie, like I said before, it's, it's a virtually unknown cast. I mean, we have Jeremy Davies in this. People might recognize him from, you know, he played Charles Manson at one point. I think it was the Helter Skelter version. Um, and then we have E. Roger Mitchell, who's been in a ton of TV, you know, like Walking Dead. Um, but otherwise, like, we mostly have people in here that you probably don't recognize with few exceptions. Uh, the main character, really, the main characters are this uh, brother and sister, um, very young. You know, they're, you know, like, I think they're supposed to be in, like, what, middle school? Uh, Finney, played by Mason Thames, and Gwen, played by Madeline McGraw. 
And so they live in Denver, Colorado. Shout out to Sam Nolan. And they they live in this like little town in 1978 where a child kidnapper and serial killer known as the Grabber has been stealing kids off the street, putting them into his van full of balloons, and then doing who knows what to them. Um, he looks kind of like he, he presents himself as a magician and he wears this ex- instantly iconic mask. Uh, one of the probably the big selling point of the character, the posters and everything is this sort of like a interesting kind of I don't even know how to just it's like a Joker kind of mask that also looks like a devil, like a gothic gargoyle sort of mask that's like shaped to his and face. It's- it's like multiple parts so you can sell yeah. all the different ones yeah like the smiley one the yeah your happy meal one. toys you got to get oh yeah. yeah you have to get the different happy meal toys so you can put the mask together and scare your, your sister um that's what you do right so <laughs> it's um, like when they had the inspector gadget toy that's exactly what i was referencing oh man <laughs> i had the inspector Gadget. i i finished it i completed the whole thing i got the whole thing too nice high five um okay so the point of this movie, though, if we can kind of bring it, is that these kids are kind of in it for themselves. One of them gets kidnapped and the other one figures out that, you know, maybe she can try to help find him through. She's always been having these sort of like psychic dreams. She thinks that God gave them to her. And so she's trying to use her visions to figure out where her brother went. She has to convince the adults in her life that she knows what she's talking about. Meanwhile, the other character is trapped. He's He's been kidnapped and he has to figure out a, a way out. There's this mysterious black phone that could hold the key to his survival um, because it's related to the other children who have been taken. So this is kind of like a, one of those supernatural movies. It's very Stephen King because it's one of those movies where like supernatural stuff kind of happens. There's no explanation for it. There doesn't need to be. It's Denver. Have you been, Will Ashton? Crazy stuff happens there all the time. Um, I think this is a good movie. Uh, my crowd was super into it. I think that it's not very impressive. I don't think it's like one of those movies that had me thinking or had me like really reeling with it afterward, but it was just like a, a, like I said, no nonsense, good time in the theater. And I think that's what people, that's what I expected out of it. And that's what I got. Um, I'm going to be honest and say I was kind of underwhelmed by this one. Uh, it's a bummer. Yeah. And, uh, I think that was because of the hype. Like I was like, Really, I mean, I don't. I, I don't think Scott Derrickson's really done anything of like greatness. Like he's even kind of just barely gotten into like goodness level of of his work. But I do. I, I think of his films, Sinister is probably the best one. And it, you know, it's a reunion. Like even though it's a great C, movie. that movie sticks it, with me. Even though C. Robert Cargill and him have been collaborating together uh, on their past few projects, including Doctor Strange. Um, I, I, I feel like this is like, okay, this is them returning to that sinister sort of grounded route. And, you know, they're also reuniting with Ethan Hawke, who is playing, I think, by his admission, his first outright villain. I mean, he's played characters of like, you know, complicated morality. But this is like the first time, I mean, I, according to him, that he's played like a complete villain in a film. And, uh, you know, I, I think all this stuff with him is a lot of fun. Uh, I think his performance is uh, effectively kind of creepy, but also goofy. Uh, it's sinister, but, you know, like there is kind of like a darkly comedic edge to it. I, I'm with it when he's on screen. And I think the Lee kid is pretty good as well. And I'm also impressed by the ways that Scott Derrickson is able to have like this one primarily central bunker location 
that isn't really like visually that interesting in terms of its style and presentation. But, you know, through his direction, he's able to kind of find unique angles and never make it look completely boring when they're focused in that location. Like, I think that's a credit to him as a director, as, as well as the cinematography. I don't know the cinematographer off the top of my head. But, uh, you know, shout out to him as well, or she. So, um, cinematographer is Brett Jutkowitz. Okay. Well, credit to him as well. Uh, but I think for me, the big problems with the film, and I'm not going to uh, disparage the short story because I didn't read it, but I think the script is unfortunately kind of wobbly here. Uh, I think they're taking a couple of ideas that are interesting on their own, but I don't think they really cohere together in a super meaningful way. I think what the movie is exploring with the relationship between like trauma and abuse and how it kind of manifests and how like it can sort of fester and linger in a small town. Well, not necessarily new territory. It's certainly borrowing a lot from the recent it adaptations as well as, you know, other recent Stephen King adaptations to the point where I'm kind of curious if that's uh, something that, Joe Hill is proud of or if something that he's kind of underwhelmed by, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but I, I, I just find myself like I, I, I'm appreciative of what's trying to do. I think there's stuff in here that works. I just don't think it really coheres together in a super memorable or super effective way, though. I do think it is uh, pretty atmospheric and occasionally pretty creepy. Yeah, I, th- I think the atmosphere for this is effective and I'm with you there. Like, I think just the locations of it are so, like, simply well done. Like, it really, they're not trying to overload us on the creepiest. It's not it, where we have to have, like, the super creepy house. Like, you just kind of have, like, a normal house. And that makes it all the more creepy, I think. Um, I, I appreciate how the movie shows restraint with the villain. It doesn't do too much with him. It kind of keeps him, like, out of the movie for big stretches and that only makes it tense because you're like he could pop out at any time um if i had an issue i do think that the movie doesn't do a great job of explaining how he gets away with this just like people would know about the van at some point and he always just seems really lucky when it comes to like grabbing people without anybody being around um so there were a couple things there i think this was missing like a third act surprise that would have been good uh but it kind of it kind of like makes too obvious something that happens you say that, but I think there's something involving uh, a sort of conspiracy theory nut. Well, that's what I was uh, referencing. That I, think that I was like, "That's not really a that, surprise." It's no, kinda, but I think that's. I think it's pretty funny. Like how it's, it's funny. It, I mean, it's yeah. it, like yeah, darkly comedic. Sure. Um, well, yeah, of course, but I think it's still funny. Like it's, like, it's on like the a, one. Well, it's see, a funny reveal, and it's funny how it plays out with his character. I think. I like how this is just. It operates in its own universe where just some people have like some kind of supernatural connection to something and it's played up as something that's not super uncommon. I kind of like that. I was like, huh, you know, like it got me thinking about what, where the movie was coming from. Um, I think I like the message of the movie a lot and the way it tells it, it's it, it sort of being like, all right, you know, at a certain point, like you need to, like no one's coming to help you. And if they do, they're probably going to be too late. You need to figure this out on your own and just like not sit around and just sort of like feel sorry for yourself. And like, 
I, I don't think it's like a great character study or anything. I think this kid, just like a kid, he just wants to like live his life and not have to, you know. But I think there is like a cynicism to it that rang true to me, where it was like when you're in a tough situation, like relying on other people, sometimes you kind of have to be proactive. And it's a sad truth, but it's one that, you know, is certainly one that had me thinking, I guess. I, it wasn't something I was expecting in this kind of movie. Cause like usually like you have like a damsel in distress character and they're just sort of like the goal is to survive. And this one, it was a little bit more complicated than that. And I, I kind of liked that. And I kind of liked the weirdness of it and like, you know, what he has to do. Cause he has to rely on people um, at a certain point, but he had to also think for himself. And I, I don't know. I, I, I like, I like how they handle that overall. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm not really like against the movie in any particular way. I just find myself sort of underwhelmed because I think there's stuff in there that's intriguing. I think I, I, I like that Scott Derrickson's kind of going back to something smaller like this. I think it plays to his strengths better as a filmmaker, but I also don't really think he's maybe strong enough to really make this sing on that restraint that you're talking about. Like, I think someone like, and I, I'm sure you're, you're going to disagree with this, but it's fine. Like, I think, something like Split is able to pull this off a little bit more effectively because I think M. Night Shyamalan is a little bit more savvy, a little bit more self-aware, a little bit goofier as a filmmaker to pull off this type of concept better. Not perfectly, but better in a way that I think is more effective in terms of balancing the dark comedy and the 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 actual horror elements of it. But I, I respect that this movie isn't really going for dark comedy for most of it. Like it, it is playing a fairly contemplative, lean, you know, like you said, sort of no frills, uh, tightly wound type of horror movie. But at the same time, if that's the case, I just feel like there is like this kind of these loose threads that don't fully connect to it in a super profound or meaningful way overall. Let's talk about the Ethan Hawke character, because sure. I can't say best enough thing good things about it. Um, yeah, best thing about it. I think I love the mask. I love that you know, he's kind of straight. He's kind of striking back to like these evil sort of like silent film villains. Um, I think one that's been referenced is uh, Lon Chaney's character from London After Midnight. A few people have pointed out that like the design, um, kind of how he carries himself, is very reminiscent of that film from the twenties. And I think the reason that it works as well as it does is that. The grabber himself, like, I don't I feel like the movie is like unafraid to make him out to be a real person and not just this sort of like pennywise, like unstoppable force of nature, but to give, I don't know, a set of rules that make sense with him that like allow the audience to sort of understand what's at stake, how how he's a character who can be defeated, but you have to like you know, outsmart him. Like there are things about that, that villain that it makes it more terrifying to me because it's more plausible, I guess. This has always been my issue with like the it movies and a lot of Stephen King things in general. I just always feel like the villains feel so insurmountable and overwhelming and never sort of like down to earth. Whereas I don't get that sense. Uh, and I haven't read the short story, so I don't know how much this tracks with Joe Hill's short story, but I just get the sense that this is a little bit more like, you know, like horns, actually, like horns to me. The one thing that I really like about that is that the supernatural stuff is carried more by the protagonists of the movie. And I think that's always so super fun of like to put that into their hands and the villains are like the normal people. So I like that. And I think Ethan Hawke in this is just you could just tell he's loving this. He's just like, I love acting. I act because I must like this is him the entire movie. 
Yeah, I mean, well, I am glad uh, that you brought the like silent film thing because I was thinking of, um, I think it's called The Man Who Laughs, the German expressionist film. Uh, like, I, I haven't seen it, but I've seen like the stills from it, and that like, yes, creepy smiling face seems to be a direct inspiration for at least one of the masks in uh, this film. Yeah, because the, the smile, like when you look at the right. smile from that, it's like half the face you know right. it's kind of like the origin of uh, the joker smile mm-hmm. in the movies uh yeah arguably probably um i don't know if that was a direct inspiration but something i thought about well i don't think uh, it was, was direct inspiration to the comics but i think it was to like the 80s version of batman um like oh, I when meant with the, the batman comics this... got serious and oh you mean on this i movie? met with Oh, in this movie, yeah, not, not the joker um oh, but okay, okay yeah um but in any case um but i mean that's good to know the uh, fun fact uh for you know uh joker trivia night when i'm fun at the for bar sure. yeah yeah you're gonna yeah. be well well prepared that's right <laughs> um but yeah i mean ethan hawk uh like i said it seems like he's really relishing this opportunity uh in his career where he seems to be more director focused for the most part i mean i know he still does stuff like moon knight and all that but like it seems like for the most part he seems to be wanting to work with like auteur filmmakers or like filmmakers he trusts, filmmakers that like seem to like want to push him in different ways as an actor. And I, I think he's developed a trust with Scott Derrickson between Sinister and this film where, you know, like they seem to play well with each other. I think certainly uh, there I don't think that he's doing like Ethan Hawke's best work, but I think Scott Derrickson gets his best work when he gets to work with Ethan Hawke. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I think his performance uh, has the the uh, Pucci effect where every time Ethan Hawke's not on screen, I'm kind of wondering like, where's Ethan Hawke? I would like to see him again, <laughs> though. I mean, I, I think he's also effectively, you know, creepy. And I'm like, this is bad news for this ki- these kids when he's around. But uh, it's such a magnetic performance and, you know, distinctly different from what we've seen from Ethan Hawke. So exciting stuff to see. I agree. But for me, I think um, Madeline McGraw, I think she is like such a great character in this. I, I think that I think she's where the movie kind of comes together for me. She's super funny and she's super engaging. Is I think she's the, a more interesting protagonist. Is that the sister? Yes. Okay. There aren't a lot of other female characters in the movie. That's a good point. I didn't really think about that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Who else would I be talking about? Um, yeah, not a lot of female characters in this. I think she's like the main one. Um, but she... She to me, like whenever she was on screen, I, yeah, I just got the sense that she was just like, I don't know, very like I got the sense like this this is going to be a big star someday because I know she's done a lot of voice work, you know, I think like she's done a couple Pixar things, Mitchell's versus the Machines, and some like small roles here and there. But uh, I was I was really impressed with this performance from her more so than uh, Mason Thames who plays the main kid, but not by a lot. I think he was he was okay as well. Um, it was an interesting performance it was very like subdued uh, kind of what it needed to be i guess uh i think uh I, I don't remember these kids names unfortunately but the the sister i think is more charismatic but i think the the late the main kid is like giving the the more of a straight stronger yeah. he's just kind of yeah 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 she she's a little bit more of like she has a very iconic line in this like jesus what the f-? <laughs> uh yeah I, don't, I wasn't really as charmed by kids who swear bits but um you know, i think like, the I, randomness I, is what made it work for me it's hilarious you mean like in the way that like kids know swear words but they don't like really know how they use them yet 
<laughs> I think for her, it's just like her frustration and like the mm-hmm. way it's written and the way she brings it out. I don't know. It, it had the audience really reacting to it, mm-hmm. which I think is what they wanted. So, I mean, I think her scene with like her, uh, not a comedic scene at all, but the, the scene where, with you the know, dad? the, yeah, I think that was Oof. like, and then the, the scene afterward, uh, with her brother, I think are really effective. I think those are yeah. two of the better, if certainly harder to watch. It's not uh, often scenes. enough we see such functional relationships between siblings, like functional in the sense of like, just like At least not an brother innocent, and sister, I guess. super caring relationship that, you know, where they're not fighting a ton or anything like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, like they, they even go to uh, uh, the point of saying like they're more like friends and siblings in this movie, which is, you know, kind of uh, making a parent. But yeah, I mean, good, however you want good- to describe it. Good kid performances. Not a good kid performances from some of the other kids in this film. Yeah, but, I would agree with that. Uh, <laughs> some of the other kids in this are pretty laughably bad. Uh, uh, but they're not on screen much, so it's not really. Yeah. I mean, there's. I feel bad because he's like so crucial to like kind of the emotional narrative of the film. But like, what's his name? The, the like kind of like long hair kid that yeah, like, Robbie. he's fighting. Is it Robbie? I think that uh, was his name. I mean, he's unfortunately not very good. Sorry kid but like not not a great performance from that guy yeah he's not in it that much so it's fine all right i like the movie you didn't like the movie much let's play the wrong i'm okay with it i don't know i was just underwhelmed okay i don't know you're allowed to be um rotten tomatoes we have 162 reviews counted what do you think the critic score is it's high probably like 93 percent it's lower but I'm gonna give you another shot. It's lower. What do you? How lower do you think? Eighty-six percent. Close. Good second guess. Eighty-five. Pretty close. Eighty-five percent. Which I, you know, that's. I think that sounds about right. There's gonna be some people who watch this and are like, I don't care, and other people who are like, I like it a lot. Uh, I guess like us. All right. Audience score. We have a thousand plus verified ratings. What do you think? Uh, eighty-eight. It's not eighty-eight. Do you think it's higher or lower? Probably lower. Is it eighty-four? No, it's 90. You did not believe in the grabber's skills. Mm. All right. What about cinema score? What do you think the folks in Vegas said? I mean, they they had just saw Elvis. Maybe they were tired when they saw this. Who knows? I mean, that's my experience. I mean, I saw these two back to back. (laughs) That's true. Um, What a weird double feature. I mean, not by choice. Uh, Just the way my timing, my schedule, I guess, I mean, uh, worked out. Uh, I'm going to say I'm going to do B plus again. Nice. It's a B plus. I was worried you were going to lowball it, but yes, a B plus. Not everybody's into it. Not everybody's answering the call. That's for sure. Okay. Letterboxd. Ghostbusters. Got, oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're having fun. All right. So we have a uh, 32,000 logged on Letterboxd. That's kind of interesting considering that's right by Elvis. Um, and it's like, it has a higher critic score, slightly lower audience score. And around the same letterbox logs. But what do you think of the average score relation zero to five on letterbox? That's right. Uh, 3.5. It's 3.6. Same exact as Elvis. How about that? And I think the difference too, is like when I, when we were looking at Elvis, a lot of people had it like three stars for Elvis, you know, not a ton of super low, super high. And this one, it's all over the place. Like, you know, Chris Evangelist, a friend of the show is like three and a half. Um, I'm seeing fours. Uh, Kimber Myers gave it a three. Clint Worthington gave it a two. Kristen gave mm. it a two. But I'm seeing fours. Like Emma Sasek gave it three and a half. 
Um, I think people like it, but it's just, you know, not, not everybody's feeling, you know, not everybody's ringtones matching this one, I guess. Matt Billington gave it four. Wow. Matt Donato gave yeah. it four. Look at that. I think these are the fantastic fest folks. Charlie Ridgely. I, I almost missed him. He gave it four. <laughs> so we got, we got a lot of fours and three and a halves, but, uh, will, I guess you're closer to probably like the, the twos, two and a half, whatever. That's uh, somewhere between two and a half and three. I feel like I'm on that side for both these movies this week. Not by choice. It just kind of worked out sure. that way. And that'll do it for our episode of Cinemaholics. Next week, I guess we're talking about the Minions. I guess. I mean, um, what else is there to talk about? Is there a, another choice? Probably something on streaming that I'm forgetting about. I mean, there's Marcel the Shell, which, you know, hit limited this past weekend. We could always get to that because I loved Marcel the Shell. And you, had, you, uh, you couldn't watch it this weekend. It's not in Pittsburgh yet. Yeah, it wasn't uh, available for me. Are you like warming up to that movie? Because I thought you were more like lukewarm on it when uh, I've been liking it. it the more I've been thinking about it. Like when I wrote my review for it, I just I watched the trailer again and I was like, man, I think I really, really liked it. Like, I think it's just it's it's just sat with me. Like, I still think about it. Uh, it, it had an effect. Uh, there's also The Princess, which is going to be on Hulu. Um, yeah, so there's a few a things. Mr. Malcolm's list. Oh, yeah. The Bleecker Street thing sure uh yeah i didn't have that on uh, my radar i don't know if a lot of people are going to expect us to check it out there's uh, the forgiven is the other one with uh ray fine jessica chastain and oh yeah that's uh um, smith I oh, what's this? uh john uh john michael mcdonough uh, yeah mcdonough yeah um yeah i heard that's pretty good there's a louis ck film fourth of july <laughs> <laughs> okay all right uh Oh god! I just real. I was looking up to see if uh, Marcel the Shell was playing near me. Did you know that the Minions is playing IMAX? Is that weird? Yeah, I mean, like, like I don't know. I mean, what, what Minions? What warns, like it's IMAX in Dolby. Yeah, it's it's a higher ticket price, and they know kids are going to go see it. That's what it is. <laughs> but like, what what advantage is there to seeing this in IMAX? The price of the ticket. And then no, I mean, like, more money? to the audience. No, I mean, I get from like a, a theater standpoint. This but, like, is the from... showtime that's most convenient and it's IMAX. So they'll be willing to pay more. Yeah, I guess so. And and you, you're, you're taking family. So you have to like all four of you have to see it or whatever. <laughs> right. Four or six. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's going to make money, I, I think. But uh, reviews have not been kind so far. I won't give away. Oh, really? I won't give it away. But I, I have seen some negative reviews. I don't know what the Rotten Tomato score is yet, but I, I have been seeing people be like, forget this. People respond to the minions the way that I responded to Taika Waititi earlier in this episode. They're just like, I'm getting sick of this. <laughs> getting getting sick tired of this. Of this. <laughs> I was I was there with the first Despicable Me, I'm just going to say. But okay, that's it for us this week on Cinemaholics. We'll be back next week. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. From the Internet California, I'm John Agroni. And from the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Wes. See you next time. <laughs> See you. Bye-bye.